Eric Shesky's Weekly You Demon. This Catholic dude abides. Culture, society, drinking, philosophy, religion. He's never out of his element. So sit back with a sarsaparilla and enjoy. Episode 76. Hey, if you get a chance, go check out the Econ Talk episode that was released two days ago. Two economists talking about the COVID virus. I really want someone to break down for me how all this money is not going to result in massive inflation, especially when you have fewer goods because people aren't producing things. You have like a lot more money chasing fewer goods. You think that the cost of those goods are just going to skyrocket. I'm halfway through the episode. I'm really enjoying it, but they don't seem to address that issue. Anyway, today we have an extended discussion about English history, which I think you're going to enjoy. Then we conclude with an extended lightning segment and reflection on one of my favorite topics of all time bars. I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, thanks for listening. I'm going to bring the historical survey forward a bit, but I'm going to keep it focused on England. And let's face it, English history is a history that is most relevant to the United States, so it merits the most attention. I'm sorry if that offends my uh, multicultural friends out there. But, hey, we are a British colony, so <laughs> we, I think it's most relevant. I think if you want to be a learned person, you need to, need to understand it, at least have a, a general historical framework for it. And on top of that, uh, I think it can be properly asserted that England was a predominant world power for nearly 200 years. From 1763, the end of the French and Indian War, to 1945, it was the man so to speak. Okay, so France under Napoleon and Germany took over those positions for a few short years, but they were blips on an otherwise glorious British run. And England remains relevant because of James Bond and Austin Powers, so... <laughs> so I'm going to start with a general overview of what, we, what we've already covered. Again, this is going to be brief. So first you have Rome's conquest of southern Britain. Then the withdrawal of its soldiers in 410, after a couple hundred of years being there. And they left the Roman citizens there, and the native Britons, B-R-I-T-O-N-S, the native Britons and the Ro- Romans, what people call the Romano-Britons, to fend for themselves. During this same time period, the 400s, although no one knows exactly when, St. Patrick went to Ireland and converted it to Christianity. After that, you had the invasions and or migrations of the Germanic, Angles, Saxons, and Jutes, who were probably at first hired by the Romano-Britons to fight the Picts and other Celtic barbarians. But then the migration to be mercenaries turned into permanent settlements and more of an invasion than migration. Again, no one knows for sure, that, but that's probably the best hypothesis. So third, uh, you had the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes pretty much taking over England and the resistance of the ancient Romano-Britain population who kind of had to flee to the to the west, like in Wales. This is the heir of King Arthur, and this would have been the milieu out of which King Arthur came around 500. Because the Angles and Saxons were pagan, Christianity pretty much squashed during this time period. Fourth stage, I think you want to understand, Irish missionaries come back to England, reconverted to Christianity. 
because again, Ireland had become Christian because of St. Patrick. Then the Irish came back and returned the favor, converted England. The English and Saxons gradually became Christianized, more British than German, and things were okay. Then fifth, the Vikings start invading, establishing permanent settlements. Alfred the Great breaks them, bring about a treaty where they divide England between the Englands and Saxons on the one hand and Vikings on the other, and they are gradually over the years merged into one king. In 1066, that's the Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror invades, wins, England becomes a French vassal state, technically. That led to the intertwining of French and English affairs, because again, William the Conqueror was French, so now the two monarchies, so to speak, were really intertwined with England being subordinate to France. But not really. <laughs> so again, had that tension that ultimately led to the Hundred Years' War, with England whooping up on France, but then Joan of Arc bailing them out, and you have the Treaty of 1453. That's pretty much the last thing we did in the historical survey, except for we talked about Henry VIII and the Reformation. So anyway, so that's what we're picking it up here today, the middle of the 1400s. So, in order to finance the Hundred Years' War, the English kings had to go to Parliament for money, repeatedly. In exchange... Parliament kept getting more and more concessions from the king. Yeah, we'll give you money if you give us this. Give you money, give you this. As a result, Parliament became very powerful. And it became the most powerful representative government in Europe. The kings obviously didn't like this. The stronger Parliament was, the less strong the king was. There's a give and take. Like, you know, <laughs> buckets in a well. So even though the kings didn't like it, there wasn't a whole lot they could do about it. But it would drive internal English disputes for the next 200 years until 1688. That's most of the era we're covering here in this segment. Now Henry VIII, he grabbed a lot of power during the English Reformation in the 1530s. In fact, a strong argument can be made that his break with Rome was triggered as much by his penis as by his greed. <laughs> I mean, in the process of breaking from Rome, huge monastic estates and other church holdings were forfeited to the new Church of England, to Henry himself, or to his allied noblemen. Hilaire Belloc points out in his absolute freaking classic, you gotta read it if you haven't, The Servile State. It's the one book that I see like G.K. Chesterton distributist types and free market libertarians of like the uh, von Mises stripe. They both praise this work. And that's pretty rare you see that. Anyway, the Servile State, he points out that the alarmingly wealthy English noble families, many of which still exist today, were formed in this era when Henry literally gave them massive amounts of wealth after stealing it from the church. When you hear those grand noble names like Howards, Cecils, Cavendishes, Russells, you can just think stinking descendants of thieves. <laughs> Their ancestors were just given massive amounts of wealth I was taken at the point of a sword from the Catholic Church. Belloc said there were more than 50 such families that profited to an alarming degree from the rape of the church. And by the way, for all you Jane Austen fans out there, I'm willing to bet if it could be determined that Mr. Darcy belonged to one of those 50 or so families. I actually went on the Google machine for 15 minutes to see what I could find, and I think I was vindicated. There's there's a ton of debate, by, <laughs> by the way, who Darcy... It really wasn't in, in real life, but 
no matter. Many think it was a guy named John Parker, the first Earl of Marley. So I looked him up on Wikipedia, and according to Wikipedia, quote, The Parker family had risen to prominence in the mid-16th century as a bailiff of the manor of North Moulton under Baron Zouche of Haringworth, unquote. I have no doubt I'm butchering some of those names, but no matter. The Parker family rose to prominence in the mid-16th century, which is exactly the time period we're talking about here. So just based on that short description, I'm guessing that the Parker family worked for a family who received a ton of money from Henry VIII, and then they kind of established their own fortunes from that. But again, that is a haphazard guess on my part. You know, I almost said half-assed guess on my part. I thought no, I'd be a little more classy and say haphazard. But makes me wonder whether the uh, the term half-ass is like the semi-literate version of haphazard. Um, <laughs> the barbarians among us can't say haphazard, so they say half-ass instead. Anyway, after Henry VIII, his son, Edward VI, took over. Now, under Henry VIII, the Anglican Church still felt and smelled Catholic. It's like its dogma shifted a little bit, and they got rid of the Pope, but everything else was Catholic. But under Edward VI, this started to change. It became far more Protestant, but he died after a short reign. Then Mary took over. Bloody Mary. By the way, these first three kings after Henry VIII were like his, they're all like half-siblings. Because Henry VIII had so many freaking wives. So anyway, Bloody Mary took over. She was fiercely Catholic and took revenge on the apostates. <laughs> and tried to return England to the Catholic fold. But then after she died, her half-sister Elizabeth took over and push England back into the Protestant fold. Now, she was actually pretty interesting, and she's called Good Queen Bess. Everyone loved her. No, not the Catholics so much, and she was far more uh, vindictive towards the Catholics than popular histories suggest. Mary gets vilified because histories are, they, they call it the Whig version of history, and the Whig version of history is very Protestant, so they're really, really down on Mary. Um, and they... They this they praise Elizabeth, but Elizabeth was pretty harsh, at least early on in her in her reign. She she reached a pretty good uh balance between being Catholic and being Protestant, so she allowed a lot more Protestant influence, but yet she kept a lot of the Catholic type ritual. And I think you still see that today, at least like in high Anglican church services. But it didn't sit well with the Puritans. Now the Puritans were heavily influenced by John Calvin's teachings. They didn't like anything to do with Catholicism, but there wasn't a whole lot they could do about Queen Elizabeth, you know, splitting the baby and kind of going 50-50 between the two. Elizabeth, after some initial turmoil, was moderate, judicious, and universally loved by everyone in England, and she ruled for almost 50 years until 1603. She never married. She wasn't a lesbian. Don't get excited. <laughs> she never married, and that led to a succession crisis and nearly 100 years of internal feuding in England as Parliament tried to wrest more and more control from the kings, and the kings tried to reassert their rights. So right after Elizabeth, James I came in. He was king of Scotland, this unified the kingdoms, and started the Stuart dynasty among English kings. Then there was his son, Charles I, who really went to battle with Parliament. Literally. <laughs> he had dissolved Parliament, which was his right, no one disputed that. And he kept the dissolve for many, many years, but then Scotland started to invade. The Scottish army started to invade, and he needed funds to fight it, and 
Parliament had to award the funds, and they're like, well, we're not meeting, so we can't award funds, so that led to a bunch of bickering, arguing, arguing between Parliament and the King, and it led to the English Civil Wars. This is the Roundheads versus the Cavaliers. The Roundheads are the Parliament forces, the Cavaliers are the Royal forces. Roundheads had closely cropped hair, Cavaliers had the wild type hair. Look at like, the Virginia Cavaliers, look at their logo. So anyway, Charles I, he lost twice. The first time he lost, there was a discussion among the parliamentarians or the roundheads of what, what should they do now that they won, and they fought among themselves. This gave the king a chance to reassemble and some parliament. Forces went over to the king, and there's a second civil war immediately. This is all during the 1640s. This time, the parliament forces were, or the roundheads, were heavily Puritan, and they won. And they executed the king. So <laughs> the extreme measures that were proposed during the after the first civil war, they won out. So the kingship was abolished, and that led to the English Commonwealth. No king, and led by a man named Oliver Cromwell. But that's enough for this week. I'm going to get into the Commonwealth and some fascinating religious spectacles in the next regular episode. You can kind of look at this as kind of one of the opening. Uh, salvos into my goal to keep adding historical perspective, but from the angle of like religious freaks. The next regular episode is going to jump into things like the levelers and the ranters and some other fascinating characters. But speaking of the next regular episode, there will be no regular show over Memorial Day weekend. I will be posting something uh, for y'all to listen to. I think I know what it's going to be, but I'm not sure yet. But again, no regular show over Memorial Day weekend. It will resume the weekend after that. Yeah, riding out the Corona beer virus with some gin and tonic. Friday night. Got some small nagging injuries. Pretty worn out. Feeling like a grandfather. Which I am. <laughs> if you didn't catch it on my blog... Edith Marie was born last Monday. Adorable little thing. She's named after Edith Stein. Edith Stein was the the Jewish philosopher. I don't want to say she was a shining light, but she was definitely one of the most promising uh, students of Edmund Husserl, the phenomenologist of the 1920s. H-U-S-S-E-R-L. And she was a student, and then one night she went to a friend's house, and she was there by herself, and she found a copy of St. Teresa Avila's autobiography on the on the table, and she read it. Suppose you read it in the night, but it's <laughs> it's a pretty freaking thick book. I have a hard time believing that. And she said, oh, this is truth. And she converted to Catholicism, and she went whole hog, became a nun. And then in 1942, the Nazis bastards. Nazis came to the convent, took her out because she was Jewish, took her to Auschwitz and gassed her, age 50. Simply awful. I'm working my way through her book, Science of the Cross. I haven't even gotten through the introduction yet, so I don't want to talk about it like I'm knowledgeable, but it's my understanding that she brings phenomenology to the study of St. John of the Cross. And she kind of combines the two. And if you listen to this podcast, you know I, I love St. John of the Cross. Probably the most Zen-like Christian thinker out there. And then he combined with the 20th century philosophy, one that Jacques Derrida attacked pretty pretty uh, vigorously. 
but he attacked it in the late 1960s, so we're dealing with a philosophy that still has legs to it and had a lot to say to modern man. And it's supposed to be a fascinating book, and so far I like it, but again, I'm only like 8% of the way through it, so... Tell you what, though, my granddaughter, man, <laughs> she is adorable. She was 32 days early, 6 pounds, 11 ounces, which is pretty big size. Uh, she is just the cutest little thing. I haven't seen her yet. She's out in Boston. Marie's out there with, with my daughter and son-in-law, helping take care of the little thing for, for a week. Leave me here in the home front to uh, drink massive quantities of gin and tonics. <laughs> Actually whipped out an old favorite tonight. Gin and tonic and then throwing in some bitters. My my daughter Abby actually bought me a real like high quality set of bitters years ago, but then I kinda got out the use of them. But it's it's like celery flavor and orange and all sorts of things. I've been getting back into it and I got this new Amsterdam gin with the fever tree light tonic. And then some orange bitters, which is pretty cool because keep in mind the New Amsterdam gin, that's a western-style gin, which means it has more of a fruity flavor to it. So the orange just kind of accentuates it, but not bad at all. I put in like four or five drops. I thought maybe that was too much, but no, it just it doesn't even have a punch or a kick. It just has a, a little accent of orange to go with this western-flavored gin, New Amsterdam, so definitely recommend it. Oh. oh, what else do I have? Oh, a couple of song recommendations. Edwin Collins, Never Met a Girl Like You Before. Great freaking song. I used to listen to it all the time. I forgot about it. Heard it on my son's playlist a couple of days ago. Been playing it nonstop since. Another recommendation. Gary Clark Jr., Travis County. I had never heard this song before. It freaking kills it. First time I heard it, I liked it. Second time, I loved it. Third time, it just blew me away. Nothing for me is cutting edge. That's from 2012. So I'm watching The Last Dance about Michael Jordan. And it's sponsored by The Facebook Company. I thought the big thing is it was called The Facebook and then they dropped The and made it just Facebook. But now they're bringing back The Facebook. I, I don't know what's going on there. I'm really digging this new medium. Well, not new. It's been around since 2012. Medium.com. I told you last week I signed up, got an account. It's five bucks a month. I'm starting to put out some essays. They like long, like long-form essays. They want the average reading time to be like seven to eight minutes. That's like a 2,000 word article. Because on Medium, every 275 words is one minute of reading. So multiply that by seven, seven and a half, eight. That's how long they want articles to be. And you want to hit that amount because then you're more likely to get, quote, curated, unquote, which means the editors or the curators at Medium will read the article, they'll like it, and they'll put it out there, out in the public, and you'll start getting tons of hits. What's also really cool is being on Medium is kind of like gambling. But the payout is 100%. So go back to the days like in Vegas before the before the uh, Indian casinos came on board and stuff. 
I heard that Vegas slots paid out like 98, 99 cents in the dollar. So you put a buck into slots, chances are you get 99 cents back or 98 cents back. But their volume was such that they could do that type of thing and still make tons and tons of money. In medium, your payback is 100% because that five bucks you put in every month to be a member, you then dole that back out to the other members. And from what I'm reading, 100% of what you buy in at, that goes back to the other writers. And you do it by clapping. So if I read an article I like, I can give them one clap, five claps, ten claps, whatever it is. At the end of the month, you get paid based on how many claps you got. And a clap is worth whatever the clapper says it's worth. <laughs> this, this stuff is really nifty. So I have five bucks of claps to give every month because that's my membership fee. If I only give out five claps that month, I just gave each writer one dollar. If I give out 500 claps, I gave them each a penny. Pretty cut and dry. And again, from what I'm reading, 100% goes back. I'm guessing Medium makes the money in other ways, but I haven't gotten any of my articles curated yet, but I'm just getting started, so well, we'll see how it goes. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And no doubt going to offend some of you, and I guess uh, I do care, but I'm going to say it anyway. Anything that is a common element of foreplay should not be engaged in with people besides your wife. I remember back when uh, Marie and I were practicing natural family planning. Still do, but we're getting a little older now, so it's not too much of a risk. And all these family counselors would be like, well, when you're on the abstaining times, just do things like platonic back rubs. <laughs> I was like, What? Platonic back rubs, yeah. That worked like 0% of the time. And, it's just, it's, and again, I get it that a massage therapist, you know, is going about their business. That can be platonic, you know, when there's, when there's like uh, some medicinal element to it. But just uh, two consenting adults doing a platonic back rub, I don't buy it. If I saw some dude give my wife a back rub with her shirt off, I'd be freaking hitting the rough. <laughs> so, I feel that way about hugging. <laughs> I mean, hugging is a common element of foreplay. I just don't think people should be doing it. Now, I'm not talking about your kids or little kids, like two-year-olds and stuff like that. I'm talking full-blown adults hugging. And I'm winning this debate, uh, hands down, because of the coronavirus. Or so I thought. This part of the lightning segments is triggered by an article that came out last week that listed the five things people miss most about life from before the coronavirus. And here's the list. Number one, having face-to-face interactions. Two, celebrating big milestones with friends and family. Three, hugging. Four, having date nights. Five, going to a bar with friends. I'm like, man, I'm really out of touch. Maybe with a few tweaks, I can make that list my list of five things I like about the coronavirus. (laughs) One, not having face-to-face interactions, especially Biden-like when they're right in your face. I like not being obligated to celebrate big milestones with friends and family. Even though I do like going to birthday parties and stuff, I don't like being obligated to. 
Um, I like the fact that there's no hugging, no hand-holding, and not even handshaking anymore. Digging that big time. And I like not having a date night with my wife. I don't have it interrupted by waves of table crashers. You know, the people come to the table, Hey, how you doing? And they sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes. And they leave. Someone else comes in. I don't miss that at all. And at number five, going to bar with friends, well, they got me there. <laughs> I joined the majority. I miss the bars. I miss going to bars with my friends. I miss going to bars with Marie. I miss stopping into a quiet bar by myself for an hour of prayer. I miss the bars, no doubt about it. Bars are the greatest thing since pubs. If given the option of reading a book in a public library or a quiet bar, I'd choose the bar. I honestly think a bar seat with a good window view is surreal. A bar with a jukebox is like a beer in a good glass. Not necessary, but very nice. I think a competent and pleasant bartender that comes to me only when my drink is almost finished is an artist at heart. And I mean that. Because he gets it. He, he wants to get at the right moment, the right timing. He wants it to come together. In an artistic type sense. Yeah, and I've said this many times over the years. A bar with good music, sports on TV without the volume on, Kino and a window view is Disneyland without the political agenda. And I believe a well-ordered bar feeds the soul. Okay, and I realize not all bars are perfect. I believe a loud and raucous bar feeds the flesh, not the soul. Like a bar with a blaring TV is like drawing a penis on a fine painting. I think using a bar for business networking is like marrying a whore. <laughs> I think the overly attentive bartender or waitress is the devil. I mean, they're supposed to be the means of grace, not its inhibitor. Table crashers who overstay their welcome are looters, looters of the soul. <laughs> and bars with drink maximums. I'm running into these these scandals recently. Drink maximums. They're like obsessive helicopter parents without the moderation. Alright, that's it for this week. If you get a chance, please go to Apple and hit subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review. It helps enormously with the search engine results, so if you could do that for me, I'd really appreciate it. Tell your friends and family, go subscribe to the Twitter account, like the Facebook page, whatever you can do, I appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>